Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast. This is episode number 58, The Startling Omega. Last time, we finished up the 1919 Bible Conference by talking about the progressive view on the inspiration of Ellen White, as well as Daniels's lament about Adventism's culture of criticism. And we are going to pick up right where we left off in this episode by talking about the aftermath of the 1919 Bible Conference. So let's get moving. You should know that the people who went to the 1919 Bible Conference generally considered it a hit. If anyone who was there thought that what was being discussed was some kind of heresy, then they kept their mouth shut. Because as it was wrapping up, some 25 attendees stood up and said how much they appreciated the conference. General Conference President A.G. Daniels wanted to schedule more of these conferences in the years ahead, perhaps even every single year. W.W. Prescott announced that the world was at a turning point, and so the Adventist message was now at a turning point as well. He really believed a new Adventism was getting ready to face a new world. And that's when two Adventists walked up and popped their optimistic bubble. Maybe Daniels and Prescott represented a new Adventism, but hey, guess what? The old Adventism hadn't gone anywhere. Ellen White was dead, and conservative Adventists were terrified that the church would forget her. Two months before she died, Judson S. Washburn wrote a scathing letter to Professor Prescott. He wrote, quote, and now when the prophet of the Lord is dying and her work closed forever, from the headquarters of our work, teachings are being sent out that falsify and utterly destroy the greatest book on earth next to the Bible, end quote. Washburn, if you didn't pick that up, considered Ellen White's The Great Controversy to be the second greatest book on earth. To Washburn, Prescott represented the liberal academic elite within Adventism, just as the liberal academic elite in many other schools were now championing liberalism. A mistrust of academic Christians is one of the persistent effects of the liberal fundamentalist controversy. After all, the belief that any normal person can understand the Bible seems to be at odds with these hoity-toity people who insist upon studying Greek and Hebrew and using words like exegesis and deuterocanonical interconnectedness. Yes, I literally heard that phrase in a class at one point in my life. If I had to give just one example of how this academic suspicion is still among Adventists, I'd point you to a relatively recent op-ed written by current editor of the Adventist Review, Bill Knott, Knott's piece is so razor sharp, which is what makes it stand out, because if I'm going to be honest with you, the review these days is usually a fairly safe, stable, stale place. Anyways, here's what Knott wrote in 2013. Quote, Now is no time to allow the well-intentioned but misguided fringes of this movement to distract us from the mission given us by Jesus. Even when their anti-intellectualism is cloaked in memorized and repeated pieties. This magazine, for 164 years, the Journal of Literate Adventism, 
will not be intimidated by those too fearful to read. End quote. Razor sharp, rousing, eloquent, and, in my personal opinion, wrong. I mean, the Adventist Bill Nodd is referring to in his article are, are not anti-intelligence. They're not too fearful to read any more than Prescott was truly bent on trying to destroy the great controversy. The point of Bill Nott's critics, not saying I agree with them or disagree with them, but their, their point is that we should only read Adventist books. They're not too afraid to read. They're too afraid to read books that might damage their spirituality, which is, on the surface at least, a reasonable concern. Anyway, I didn't mean to get into that sort of thing. I just want to show you how this trend of, I don't like calling it anti-intellectualism, but this trend of academic suspicion is still among Adventists. So the Adventist world after the 1919 Bible Conference is not too different from the Adventist world today. That's, that's my point. My hope is that by studying the aftermath of the Bible Conference, Adventists can see the danger of living in a bubble, in forming tribes. Because just as surely as the teachers and leaders of the Bible Conference were in a bubble, hey, guess what? So were their two chief critics, Washburn and his friend Claude Holmes. You might remember that Claude Holmes was the one who copied thousands of pages of Ellen White's unpublished testimonies from the General Conference vault, for which he would shortly be fired from the Review and Herald where he worked. And to my knowledge, at least, I don't think he ever worked for the church again. So Daniels was furious in the aftermath of that affair because some of those pages Holmes copied were private letters Ellen White had written to people like Daniels. Holmes, of course, believed that he did absolutely nothing wrong. I made no secret of it, Holmes said. And he was also accused of publishing a testimony which embarrassed Daniels, but Holmes denied ever publishing any of Ellen White's writings. Holmes then wrote a letter to Uriah Smith's son, saying that he knew that both the General Conference and Review and Herald leaders were meeting to decide what to do with him. This is right before he got fired. Holmes told Smith... In that letter, quote, I do not know what the future has in store for me, but I do know this, that in the attempts to suppress the warnings and counsels given to this people, they are fighting a power that they cannot manipulate to suit themselves, end quote. You see, Holmes believed these writings, these unpublished writings were in the General Conference vault because people like Daniels didn't want them to see the light of day. They were hiding something that the church, in Holmes' opinion, desperately needed to hear. And so he convinced himself that Daniels and company were really fighting the power of God by suppressing these writings of Ellen White. Holmes also mentioned in the letter that he found the Review and Herald report in the trash at the Review and Herald, and this report was on Uriah Smith's Daniel and Revelation, in which the press allegedly plotted to make substantial changes to the book. Holmes again, quote, There is an insidious movement making its way here to undermine the pillars of our faith and the sly innuendos that are often made in one way and another demonstrates outwardly what is going on more subtly behind the scenes. End quote. 
If you haven't guessed by now, Holmes smelled a conspiracy around every corner. He studied the sales figures, for instance, for The Great Controversy, and another book, Bible Readings for the Home. Now, Bible readings have been edited, changed, Prescott had a hand, and I don't want to get into that right now, but, but Holmes noted that 57,000 copies of Bible readings had been sold in 1916, but only 6,000 copies of The Great Controversy. He smelled a plot, which, in his words, was to sidetrack the great controversy in favor of the book Prescott had a hand in. Of course, if Holmes had just, I don't know, done a little bit of homework, he could have gone back to, let's say, 1898 and found that Bible readings was selling hundreds of thousands of copies more than the great controversy. Of course, that Bible reading, that version of it was one that Prescott hadn't touched. But my point is, Bible readings have been outselling the great controversy for many, many years, for decades and that shouldn't be surprising or indicative of some kind of conspiracy. So, even before the 1919 Bible Conference, Holmes and Washburn have had this, they, they, they nursed this conspiratorial mistrust of church leaders. And this mistrust was most clearly seen in the aftermath of the 1919 Bible Conference. When Holmes wrote an open letter to Washburn called... Have we an infallible spirit of prophecy? Spirit of prophecy, of course, is a, a phrase you find in, in Revelation, which Adventists use to describe the writings of Ellen White. They call her the spirit of prophecy, or at least her writings. What's notable in Holmes's letter, his have we have an infallible spirit of prophecy, is that word infallible. It's an ominous word in Protestant circles, who generally associate that word with the Pope and papal infallibility. Holmes chose this word carefully, however. So in this letter, he immediately takes aim at the 1919 Bible Conference. Quote, I heard it stated again and again by a number of our Bible and history teachers that Sister White is not an authority on history. End quote. That's true. But never mind the fact that Holmes makes it sound like he was there at the 1919 Bible Conference, which caused some confusion for later historians, right? He said, I heard it stated again and again uh, by a number of our Bible and history teachers. Anyways, it makes it sound like he was there, like he's in the know, like he's in the loop of what's going on. But he's clearly aiming at Daniels and Prescott and that progressive camp here. You remember from our last episode that the progressive position on the inspiration of Ellen White was that the weight of her inspiration rested on her meaning, not on her words per se. Or as William Worth had put it, quote, history was merely thrown in to substantiate the principles, end quote. So she could get a date wrong and still be inspired, just as the biblical authors might make minor mistakes, as in the case we talked about of Matthew quoting Jeremiah when he probably meant Zechariah. That sort of stuff is not a big deal to progressives, okay? Matthew in the whole Bible is is uh, is not to be thrown into the trash simply because he quoted the wrong prophet. That's not a, a substantive mistake uh, to the progressives. But to Holmes, it was a big deal. If Ellen White quoted Gibbons or Daubigny, then whatever she selects from their writing automatically comes under the umbrella of her inspiration. To make this case, Holmes quotes a theologian named George Bush. no. Not the president. No, no, no. Not even the other president. Different guy. Bush said 
that, quote, under the superintending control of providence, an inspired man may make use of an uninspired document, end quote, thus making whatever the prophet quoted from the document inspired as well. Holmes is even clearer a few paragraphs later when he writes, quote, the whole Bible record proves beyond contradiction that when God spoke through a person, whether learned or unlearned, everything touched upon became authoritative. For God, not the prophet, was the one speaking. The same is true respecting Sister White. End quote. Now, Holmes was a walking index of Ellen White's writings. Even people who opposed him would still sometimes write to him asking him where this or that statement was. So it's kind of surprising for me, that someone who knew Ellen White's writing so well could so fundamentally misinterpret them. Early on in his letter, Holmes quotes Willie White. He quotes Willie White as saying that Ellen was not an authority on history, but she wrote out descriptions based on brief revelations or flashlight pictures, as, as Willie put it, that were given to her. Willie, quote, she has made use of good and clear historical statements to help make plain to the reader the things which she is endeavoring to present, end quote. You may listen to that and think, hey, Holmes, I don't think that quote means what you think it does. I mean, the opening line of the quote is literally, quote, mother has never claimed to be an authority on history, end quote. And, and then Willie says that his mom, quote, made use of good and clear historical statements to help make plain to the reader the things which she is endeavoring to present, end quote. In other words, Ellen White found historians who best illustrated her point. And that's exactly the progressive position. The point is what is inspired, not the illustration of the point. So I don't know what Holmes saw in that quote from Willie White that he thought uh, would help his case. But anyways, he didn't bother to quote other things from Willie White. Willie White, who said, quote, Mother never wished our brethren to treat her writings as an authority regarding the details of history or historical dates. End quote. Oh, and just for good measure, let me share another quote from Willie White. Quote, It was not Mother's plan or purpose to write books which should be used to correct history and chronology. The aim of her books is to bring out the great facts regarding the plan of redemption, and she used historical quotations to illustrate the character of the controversy, end quote. What's more was the 1883 General Conference Session, which passed a resolution with the approval of the whites that, quote, we believe the light given by God to his servants is by the enlightenment of the mind, thus imparting the thoughts and not except in rare cases, the very words in which the ideas should be expressed, end quote. Again, it's the thoughts of Ellen White that are inspired, not necessarily the specific words. So how a walking index of Ellen White's writings could just overlook Ellen White's son and the things that he was saying over and over and over again, could overlook general conference resolutions on the topic, is something I don't know that I'll ever understand. Look, inspiration is a complicated topic, and Avenus still haven't arrived at a consensus even today. But what's clear is that Holmes had been far more influenced by his culture than he imagined. I mean, he borrowed his idea of verbal inspiration, the idea that every word of Ellen White was inspired. He borrowed that from fundamentalists, not from Adventists. 
not from Ellen White, but the really shocking part of Holmes' letter was the ending. He wrote, quote, several have said to me, oh, you're making a pope out of Mrs. White, end quote. And of course, Holmes after that said, no, I'm not trying to make her into a pope. Let's, let's not be absurd. Except he didn't say that, not at all. What he said was, quote, I reply never. I would not lower the dignity and authority of God's messenger by putting her on a par with a pope. She is far above and superior to any pope. End quote. Uh, is anyone else out there not liking where this is heading? Holmes says that the pope is only infallible when speaking ex cathedra on questions of morality and faith, but Ellen White is infallible on all questions. Quote, the ex cathedra decrees of the pope I believe to be Satan's counterfeit of the true and fallible guide that God has placed in his church under the title of the spirit of prophecy and a weak counterfeit at that. End quote. And then, like a cherry on top, Holmes concludes his letter, quote, I stand absolutely and uncompromisingly for the inspiration of Sister White's writings. I draw no line between the so-called human and divine. They are all scripture to me. End quote. They are all scripture to me? In 1926... Holmes made the same statement again in a letter to Willie White. Quote, I love your mother's writings. They are all scripture to me. End quote. Can I just stop talking about history for a second and just share a profound truth about life? Be very careful what you fight against. Because it's very easy for you and I to become the thing we're fighting. Holmes never accepted modernism. He never accepted theological liberalism. He warred against it. He thought he was defending the old Adventist faith. But this, this thing about Ellen White is higher than the Pope and her writings as scripture? That's not Adventist. Modernism couldn't buy Holmes, couldn't convert Holmes. But modernism did bully him pushed him out of position as an orthodox defender of Adventism, at least on this point, and pushed him to the other extreme. In his zeal to defend Ellen White, Holmes couldn't have been further away from her. Let's be careful about how we fight the things that we fight, lest we find ourselves... Not just compromising with it, not just becoming the thing we're fighting, but we allow ourselves to get pushed around by it. We, we find ourselves getting driven to an extreme. Something we should keep an eye on. Anyway, back to the history. Look, Ellen White often had to deal with people who claimed more for her than she claimed for herself. There was a doctor who once wrote her, quote, I was led to conclude and most firmly believe that every word you ever spoke in public or private, that every letter you wrote under any and all circumstances was as inspired as the Ten Commandments, end quote. 
Ellen responds, quote, My brother, as you have studied my writings diligently, you have never found that I have made such claims. Neither will you find that the pioneers in our cause have made such claims, end quote. The stuff about Ellen White and infallibility suddenly helps make sense of something Daniel said at the 1919 Bible Conference. After reminding everyone that Ellen White was fine with revising some of her writings, Daniel said, quote, I never understood that she put infallibility into historical quotations, end quote. H.C. Lacey replied, quote, but there are some who do, end quote. I think we get an idea here of who Lacey is referring to when he says that some do put infallibility into the historian's Ellen White quotes. Now, Holmes wasn't done either. A few weeks after his open letter to Washburn, he wrote to H.C. Lacey, one of those progressives who wanted to turn an Adventist college into a full-fledged university to hand out master's degrees and PhDs and things like that. Holmes thought this was a, a horrible betrayal of the faith, as if Lacey was just after worldly recognition and honors and influence. Holmes surmises that if we could just give out master's and doctoral degrees, then students would rush to get them and accumulate as many as they can so they can have some important-sounding title and take over the leadership of the church. Holmes said that such an idea was out of harmony with the Adventist message, calling it a useless, expensive, and dangerous experiment. He told Lacey to oppose this, quote, scheme for conferring popish degrees, end quote, upon God's people. He blasted Lacey by telling him, quote, you are looking to the God of Ekron instead of the God of heaven, end quote. Then Holmes sent Lacey a bunch of Ellen White quotes, and if that wasn't enough, included one final handwritten note on the back of the letter just telling him how bad his idea to form a university is. Anyways, Holmes's first letter to Washburn, the one about Ellen White being higher than the Pope, prompted a reply from Washburn who wanted to join in on the fun. And this was also, inevitably, an open letter. If Holmes elevated Ellen White into the stratosphere then Washburn's letter was about slinging mud. Washburn called his letter the Startling Omega and its True Genealogy, which is very catchy. And in this letter, he named names, which is something Holmes was hesitant to do. In the first paragraph, Washburn rejoices over the firing of an Adventist teacher. In the second paragraph, he calls W.W. W. Prescott's preaching a voice from the tomb, and Washburn just proceeds to lay into Prescott like only Washburn can do. Prescott's sermon wasn't an Adventist sermon. In Washburn's words, it was, quote, the strangest, most impractical, proofless sermon I have ever heard, end quote. And then in a uniquely Adventist burn, Washburn calls Prescott's sermon a great disappointment. Nice. Well played. He also called it meaningless, proofless, toothless, and then so helplessly, hopelessly unreal that it was depressing. And after all of this little bit of team building here, Washburn tells us that Prescott confronted him like, hey, why are you saying this stuff about me, dude? And at the end of their conversation, where Washburn appears very reasonable and Prescott appears very unreasonable, Washburn writes, quote, he arose abruptly and turned his back on me and started to leave me. 
I was about to extend my hand and say goodbye as Christians ought to part, but he was out of reach. I felt sorry and hurt to see him show such a bitter and angry spirit. He turned his back on me abruptly and walked away. I regretted greatly that he showed such a lack of Christian charity. But what else could be expected from one whose teachings have made the college a nest of higher criticism? End quote. Washburn, seriously, dude? I mean, you're going to say all that about a man and then act surprised when he's upset with you? You're going to act surprised when he doesn't want to shake your hand? I mean, dude, you lay it on so thick in that final paragraph. I mean, Washburn instantly goes from this confident, acid-tongued writer to this wounded little passive-aggressive puppy whenever it suits him. But it's this lack of understanding in both Holmes and Washburn that's so frustrating. Washburn believes that many of the general conference leaders don't believe Ellen White is inspired when she writes about history. But that's that's not the progressive position. That's not what we read about in the 1919 Bible Conference. It's, it's not that whenever she talks about history, she's not inspired. Nobody believes that. Prescott wasn't saying that Ellen White is never inspired when she writes about history, only that when she quotes from historians, those historians can sometimes be wrong about dates and things, which, guess what? Historians in the 18th century and 19th century tend to be from time to time. But if Holmes' letter was a carefully reasoned argument, Washburn's is just a mudslinging mess. He manages to unite all the boogeymen of the 20th century, Kellogg, Jones, Wagner, the Daily Controversy, Modernism, and he lays all of them at the feet of Prescott. I mean, what am I saying? Washburn goes actually even further back, way further than the 20th century. He actually says that Prescott's doctrine is, quote, the same old apostasy as in the beginning, as in the days of Constantine and the papacy, end quote. So all of that, Prescott is a summary of all of the boogeymen in Christian history. Washburn really just seems to come unhinged in this letter, saying that Prescott's men at the Washington College were rolling up paganism, heathenism, spiritualism, and the direct bald religion of devil worship. And then Washburn calls him the most colossal hypocrite of the ages. So yeah, let's just go back to that part about how you're horrified that Prescott wouldn't shake your hand and how that was so unchristian of him. I think we could talk about that a little bit more. Anyways, look, Ellen White, Ellen White had called Kellogg's panentheism the alpha of heresies, the alpha, and claimed that someday the omega would follow. Washburn had no problem seeing Prescott's teachings in that apocalyptic context. And once you get into that mold. Once you get into that form of mind, the conversation's over, guys. The conversation's over. Historian John Fay has sketched out four periods of fundamentalist history. He calls the first period from 1893 to 1919 the Irenic or peaceful phase. But the second phase, beginning in 1920, he calls the militant phase. Why did it turn militant? Another historian, George Marsden, argues that one of the reasons for this is that Western fundamentalists associated the destructive power of the German army in the First World War with the destructive power of German liberal theology, because Germany was the birthplace of this modern liberalism. And so when the Baptist preacher, Curtis Lee Laws, coined the term fundamentalist, he meant it to describe any Christian willing to do, in his words, battle royale, for the great fundamentals of the faith. 
So there was this conception that being a fundamentalist meant taking part of a theological and cultural war. This was the age of muscular, manly Christianity. And it's only when you realize this historical context that Holmes and especially Washburn make a little bit more sense. I mean, they weren't just grumpy Christians. They saw themselves as part of a, a great war. Washburn's Omega letter was so full of fundamentalist catchphrases. Washburn himself said his Omega letter was as if, quote, I were fighting desperately the attack of a wild and savage beast or a venomous serpent upon my family or friends, end quote. Like, that's how he sees this controversy. That's how he sees his church's leaders, right? They're like this, they're a savage beast or venomous serpent, at least the ideas, the heresies that he believes they hold. Uh, and he's got to fight it for his own survival. He doesn't apologize for the lack of niceties. He doesn't apologize for slinging mud around. This is war. This is survival. Daniels and F.M. Wilcox, who was the editor of the Review, were among the many who tried to calm down the torrent of venom with little success. Daniels wrote Wilcox, quote, such men as J.S. Washburn and Claude Holmes are carrying on such violent warfare against some of us men that we must be exceedingly careful lest many of our people have their faith in us utterly shaken. To me, they are not absurd, but devilish in spirit, end quote. Daniels' first reaction was to come down hard on Washburn and Holmes, and he even explored the possibility of removing Washburn's pastoral credentials to get him kicked out of the ministry. But Daniels eventually took a more conciliatory approach, perhaps hoping to win them over with kindness. Daniels confessed this to Washburn in a letter, asking for Washburn's forgiveness, hoping to restore their relationship. Daniels even praised the memory of Washburn's father, whom Washburn had idolized. Daniel sighed about the culture of criticism we talked about last time, which was dominating the Adventist church. And, and so he appealed to his chief criticizer to call a truce and change the tone of Adventism. Washburn responded in yet another open letter, waving off Daniels' desire for peace with yet another broadside attack. Sure, I forgive you, Washburn wrote Daniels, but you need to repent and seek God's forgiveness for changing Seventh-day Adventist beliefs and opposing Ellen White. As for Washburn's father, well, the younger Washburn reminded Daniels how his father had stood against everything Daniels currently stands for. And as for that culture of criticism, Washburn shot back. The administration of Elder Daniels is the supreme era of criticism. End quote. In other words, you know, it's, it's your fault for all the criticism. If you guys weren't messing up so bad, I wouldn't have to criticize you. I mean, that was, that was really Washburn's rationale. So Washburn publicly crushes every olive branch that Daniels offers. There would be no truce. And then Washburn upped the ante. He began quoting from private letters Ella White had written to Daniels more than 10 years prior, telling Daniels, as she did back then, to let the daily issue go. Washburn went after the Bible readings book and how it was full of heresy, how Lacey and Prescott had wanted to turn Washington College into a university so that they might teach higher criticism, and on and on. Washburn loaded every grievance of the past seven or so years into his cannons and just unloaded them on Daniels one after the other, after the other, after the other. He even went so far as to wonder whether Daniels and Prescott had now committed the unpardonable sin and were past the possibility of redemption. And yet, 
in an earlier letter to Daniels, in between the Omega letter and the letter to Daniels we're now discussing, in between those two, Washburn had written to Daniels, quote, no one living can more deeply regret a personal attack, a bitter personal controversy. I am surprised and grieved that it should be taken as such, end quote, which is uh, a little hard to take seriously. Seriously, Washburn, no one alive can more deeply regret a personal attack or a bitter personal controversy. No one alive can regret it more. Oh, boy. And then the letter takes a darker turn. Washburn demands a hearing before the General Conference Committee. Why? Because he is the victim. He's the victim of Daniels' slander, and he wants a chance to defend himself. And if he doesn't get his hearing, then he will print out this letter and hand it to the delegates at the next General Conference session. Washburn demanded conference presidents and others from the global work be present at his hearing. In other words, Washburn wants an audience. Which, yeah, ha, no church leader in his right mind would give somebody. I find two things amazing about this whole episode. First is how much life went on during this time. If you just read the denominational papers, you'll find articles praising Washburn for raising money or for his work as a pastor in Toledo, Ohio. And then you'll find articles reporting on Daniels moving around, preaching, teaching, doing the, the stuff that he does as General Conference President, as if nothing is going on behind the scenes. Any Adventist sitting in a pew in Nebraska or Switzerland would be forgiven for not realizing a terrible, bitter fight was going on behind the scenes between the two men. Occasionally, you will see printed little hints. Washburn will put a little ad in the paper for, for some Ellen White writings that he's offering people, saying that, you know, I know it's not popular to believe that she's inspired now, but... Here it is anyway for those who want it. You know, like little little kind of tiny digs that give little hints. And so that's about the only evidence you get. Otherwise, it looks fairly normal on the surface. Now, the second thing I find amazing is just how long this thing went on. I mean, sure, the, the public fire of the controversy would die down within a few years in part because Washburn made good on his threat and circulated his critique of Daniels at the General Conference session in 1922, which resulted in William Spicer being elected General Conference president in Daniels' place. Okay, after 21 years in office, Daniels was done. Now I say, which resulted in Daniels uh, being, I don't want to say fired, but not re-elected to being General Conference president. We actually, we don't know the extent to which Washburn and Holmes uh, should get credit for that result. But it wasn't exactly a fall of grace for Daniels. It wasn't exactly an unblemished win for Holmes and Washburn. I mean, Daniels just ended up trading places with his number two man, William Spicer, and served for years as the number two man at the General Conference. So, yeah. Even in the 1950s, however, Holmes is writing Washburn saying that the new view of the daily is being taught in all the Adventist colleges, leading Holmes to say that Satan is behind the movement. This is the 1950s. Holmes also wonders if Daniels really finished one of his books before he died, or if perhaps Leroy Froome had a secret hand in writing it. Again, just casual conspiracy stuff. Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson, wrote to Holmes in 1952, 
Washburn had sent Holmes a document from somebody claiming to have had a conversation with Ellen White about the Daily Controversy in 1910. And this document was good ammunition in his always ongoing fight against the Daily. So Holmes, though, wanted to do his homework, so he sent the document to Arthur White to ask if it was indeed authentic or if it sounded right. And so a third generation of the White family did what the White family often did, correct misunderstandings about the White family. In his reply, Arthur White, son of Willie, doubted that the document Holmes had was authentic because it sounded a little bit too harsh on Daniels to be something that Ellen White might have said in 1910. Yes, Arthur White acknowledged Ellen White told Daniels to drop the daily issue, but Arthur White told Holmes that Ellen White had had great confidence in Daniels in her final years. After all, she named him to the board of trustees in her will. And in the end, Arthur White said, quote, we think that it has been very unwise and misleading for Elder Washburn to place this suspicious document in circulation, end quote. Holmes was then feuding with Leroy Froome over the Daily. Froome had kind of taken up the new view and became that generation's champion of it. And so Holmes sought to bring Arthur White into the fray. But White would have none of it. He told Holmes that based on his own study, his grandmother's writings should not be used to decide this issue one way or the other. Now, the implications of White's counsel there is that everyone should just knock it off about the daily, which seems to be a White family tradition. Holmes, of course, took White's letter, his counsel to knock it off, as purely evidence against Froome, and so Holmes declared victory. In 1951, Holmes wrote to Washburn, asking for three or four more copies of his Omega letter so that he can give them out. In 1951, guys, he wants three or four more copies of this Omega letter. Okay, Ellen White is, de is dead. Daniels is dead. His successor, William Spicer, is almost dead. Hang in there, Will. But the battle went on. I mean, Holmes signed one of his last letters he ever wrote to Washburn, I am your friend in the great battle of the ages. Holmes and Washburn had more than a moment in the spotlight. Not only was Daniels not reelected, but many church leaders wrote letters of support for the two men in the controversy. In the, in the face of Holmes and Washburn's criticisms, efforts were made to secure loyalty to Daniels and return him to office in a kind of underground campaigning among church leaders. Holmes and Washburn and their supporters were branded Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, or these Old Testament rebels who opposed Moses, which I, I guess makes Daniel's Moses, just something his biographer notes. 1922 proved to be the most nakedly political general conference session in a long time. Local newspapers in San Francisco gleefully noted the drama, and a resolution was passed condemning the work of Holmes and Washburn, though not by name. Still, Daniels was out. It was a skillful compromise, with Daniel stepping down one notch in the hierarchy of things, and the protesters rebuked, things seemed to settle down for a little bit. It's easy to come down on Holmes and Washburn. I mean, their tactics were often harsh, sometimes unchristian. They saw everything in black and white. They didn't truly seek to understand their opponents. They represented some of the worst caricatures, Holmes and Washburn did, of fundamentalism. And yet, here's the question I want to leave you with. What should they have done?
What do you do when you genuinely feel your church is drifting out to sea? What do you do when you genuinely believe the biblical, authentic, last-day movement which Jesus miraculously raised up out of 1844 is now becoming like every other church in the world? What do you do? How do you address that? Perhaps this is why the spirit of Holmes and Washburn will always live on, not just in the Adventist church, but in every church. Because the question of how how to handle unwelcome change is still on the table. It's never been answered. One thing I hope that we can agree on is that the path of Holmes and Washburn wasn't the right answer to that question. This total war mentality never actually brought them victory. Holmes and Washburn represent some of the darker tendencies of Adventism to tear itself apart. They imagine themselves the pure defenders of the faith. But it's kind of clear in hindsight just how much they were influenced by the surrounding culture, the surrounding theological debates of their day. And that's something worth thinking about. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.